0: We appreciate you coming, my brother. How y'all doing? It's cold out here. <laughs> I was telling them people keep coming and keep getting turned away. They don't know about the. They don't want to read the vaccines, man. Oh yeah, yeah. The mandates, right. you know, Wisconsin still got the mandates, but um. I live in Miami. It's a free for. It's free for all out there. <laughs> do what you want to do. Um. Listen, we have uh, we broadcasting live on things. Everybody for uh, viewing us live. But I want to first start off talking about, Rico, talk about your journey. Just a brief, I know you've spoken about it um, th- several times, but can you give us a brief uh, walkthrough of your journey into making, making, to get to your successful point in your career?
1: Well, you know, I think a major point in my career was going to school. When I went to FAMU, I went to Florida A&M University and flying down there, um, had me closer to Atlanta, and a guy by the name of Will Mathis, who I grew up with, he introduced me to a, a guy named Vincent Cersei, who is based out of Atlanta. And um, so, Cersei, that introduction took me to taking bus trips to Atlanta to kind of make it in the business. So, being down in that proximity, I think it made it a lot easier for me mm-hmm. to get connected to the music business. But going to Atlanta on the weekends from college, was my introduction to you know I was around Jagged Edge and I was around Jermaine Dupri and um, Cersei was just con- cultivating and developing developing me as a as a rap artist and it kind of is where I got my start and got my the opportunities that were presented to me were were in the Atlanta market like that early Atlanta market I'm I'm telling you it was myself Sierra Carrie Hilson T.I. Young Jock we were all just trying to make it dream um, we were all just hanging out together and trying to make it in music. So imagine if you hang hanging with, it's like the dream team of music. And we was all just couldn't even afford to feed ourselves. And we would all be in the studios, passing each other in, in the hallways, and getting mentored by some really legendary, iconic producers and executives. And uh, so that was kind of the beginning of where my career started going down there to Atlanta and kind of getting opportunities. And then obviously, ultimately, meeting Usher. and. Um, performing for him at a showcase and, and and kind of giving me my break. Right.
0: Now, in that it, it required you to take some risk. And to me, I think that's where a lot of people in any industry, especially when it's something that's not just like a job, they, it's hard to take risks. risk. Well, they're scared. It's not hard. They're scared to take the risk. What, what was the fear? What gave you the fearlessness to actually take the risk to even jump out the window to say, oh, I'm going to go to school during the week and then I'm going to go here on the weekends to try to make something happen? Yeah, honestly, it didn't feel like a risk,
1: you know, and that's the part about it that was that always kind of vexes me when I talk to people. It didn't feel like a risk. It just felt like what I wanted to do, you know, Uh on the weekends, some kids went to parties. I would get on the Greyhound and go to Atlanta. That didn't seem like a hard choice for me. You know what I mean? Right. Or or Chad would drive me. You know, we went to school together and he was an upperclassman in college. But he was one of those guys who uh, we always joke about the first time we hung out and he took me to Applebee's. And I was just like, are we going to pay for this? <laughs> but um, it's like, he would drive me to Atlanta, you know? Like, you would meet people and you'd be like, yo, I'm trying to do music, but I go to Atlanta on the weekends. He, and he was just like, I'll take you. And I didn't have gas money for him. It was just like, yo, let's just go. So um, it didn't seem like a risk. It didn't seem like. It was a no-brainer. It was like, I want to make it, so I do whatever it takes to make it. Absolutely. And that's key. Most people will not do whatever it takes. They'll complain. Yeah,
0: you know what I'm saying. They'll complain about what, why something is not occurring, instead of complaining
1: of why something can actually happen for yourselves. You know, thinking about the opportunity or creating opportunity. Actually, the one thing to say to yourself: This is difficult, or I I I don't have any opportunities. And then it's another thing to say: Well, let me create every opportunity possible. Let me put myself in the middle of where it's going to happen. So you know, I couldn't be a kid sitting in college wondering why I didn't make it. I won every talent show there was at school. I performed at every concert. I opened up for all the artists but then I had to say to myself it's not going to happen for me in Tallahassee. So I had to get on the bus and go to Atlanta and then get people to drive me to Atlanta and I just went every weekend. It wasn't even a, a factor or a situation of something was happening for me or something was available. I just went and I was just hanging out and I would just be there and if something happened, if something was available I did it, if it wasn't. But I just went. So, you know. It was easier for me to go and to not go. Now, going from Rico Love the artist,
0: when when the artistry started taking off for you, uh, when you when you start working with Usher, uh, give us give us inside of your thought process as the artist first. And then I want to go from being Rico Love the artist to Rico Love the songwriter or how those two intertwine with each other.
1: Yeah, um, as an artist, I always had an executive mind. So Again, um, when the label I didn't feel like was doing enough for me, I had uh, I had made some money off a publishing deal because I wrote a song I wrote a "Throwback" for Usher on a Confessions album, so I made a little money on a publishing deal. So I paid for mixtapes and I would press up my own mixtapes and then I would uh, uh, I had a gangster grills. That's back when it was uh, DJ Drama and um, Don Cannon, and uh, I remember. I paid for my own gangster Grills, you know. That was $15,000 for a gangster Grill at that time. And I might have had $30,000 to my name. So imagine if you took half of what you have in the bank to give to a dream. Not to a house, not to a car, or, you know, to some mixtapes, you know what I mean? That's not even paying to press them up, that's just paying them to actually do your mixtape and the artwork and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, and and it didn't even, it wasn't even a huge success, it's just, you just did it. But um, one of those things where you just, um, the work from being an artist, I always had an executive mind. When I was first signed as an artist, I signed my artist. I signed a girl from Milwaukee named Takara, Takara Hamilton. And I remember being like, I always wanted to be an executive, always from day one, even when I first got my record deal. So it was one of those things that I was just always passionate about breaking artists and establishing acts. It was just a thing that I knew I had to do. So, um, as an artist, I still had the CEO executive mind. I had a production mind, a producer mind, a building, uh, you know, establishing and developing type of mindset. And it wasn't a I didn't have a lazy hustle. I didn't believe I did. I did honestly. I felt like there was more Usher could have been doing for me. At that time, I did. I was a little frustrated, but I feel like, man, you you're the biggest artist in the world. All you have to do is just do this, or why don't you just do this for me? Right. And you know, in retrospect, you realize the man took me on tour with him around the world. I performed every night in front of seventeen thousand people. If and what I would say to him was like, why don't you press up some CDs that so we can give them away in each market? And and, and he's like. And I was so, so upset, then I had to realize, why didn't you do it? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, obviously, I couldn't afford 17,000 CDs per city. city, right. <laughs> for 35 dates. But <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I definitely was a go getter. I always wanted to get it. I never really, I um, always was ambitious and always felt like, what can we do next to, to, to get it? You know? Right. So, even as an artist, that's what my mind was. Absolutely. So
0: now let's transition from Love the artist to Love the songwriter, because a lot of people in the building are trying to become that what you've accomplished, uh, the many accolades I've watched you work with, whether it was Mary or Usher or even new artists that never came out, the energy when we're in the studio with these artists, have been the same. It doesn't matter if it's the biggest artist or the smallest artist. Your energy, the creativity. I, I've noticed that you sit and talk to them, and we have you have conversations with them. And it's like it's kind of like you're uh, a therapist. Or I, I heard you use. The, when we were, I think we were in Johannesburg, and you used this this analogy. He said we are in Johannesburg. I'm like an attorney. And what my job is as the songwriter, he's called himself the artist's attorney as he's writing a song for them. It's his way of pleading their case to the public what that song is trying to say and grab a hold, gravitate and grab a hold to them so that they can understand what this, who this artist is. So that's basically how I remember him saying that one time. And that stuck out to me because
1: that's extremely true. As that, yeah, yeah, because I'm not uh, the song are just words, but understanding understanding how to explain to the people who this person is through the song, all right? So um, a rich person's heartbreak is different from a poor person's heartbreak. It's different. A rich person says, the audacity you have to cheat on me. <laughs> I'm, I'm Rihanna. How you gonna cheat on me? So you write a different heartbreak song for Rihanna than you do for a new act who don't have nothing? Cause she's like, why are you doing this? Oh, I'm hurt. But Rihanna's like, what? Right. You know what I mean? Like, so um, it's a different idea. And I'm basically saying that, as their attorney, as their representative, I'm speaking for them—the things that they may not know how to speak for themselves. Because your lawyer, you could tell your lawyer, bro, I didn't do it. The murder happened on 47th Street, I was on 26th Street. Right. And then you will get up in front of the judge and sound crazy. But the lawyer knows how to say, I have 15 witnesses who saw my person here. I went and questioned all the witnesses. I have CCTV footage of this person being here. I have this, so you're going and not only saying that this is the facts, but here's the evidence. So that's not saying this is who this is as an artist, but the song is the evidence of who they are. How How they execute the vocal, how I produce the vocal, how the record translates on radio, how the record sounds against the production. I'm pleading the case for them. I'm not just saying, oh, she loves this guy. How does a person from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who grew up in this city, whose mother was around, her dad wasn't around, whose parents divorced at a young age, who has three siblings, who had to work a job at N.E.N. Pretzels in Mayfair Mall, who got fired from here, like how does she, all these things I know about this person, how do I plead this case and say, this is who they are, and you can listen and say, I know that person. I can identify with who they are. When you listen to Mary, you know that she came from struggle. You know it. There's a certain person that you know is a Mary J. Blige fan. When you listen to Beyonce, you understand like this is a person that's just embodies the whole essence of beauty, of grace, of class, of poise, of elegance. So when she sings uh, Lemonade, you like, what? Beyonce can have a heartbreak too, it's a different type of narrative. So you have to understand who these people are and how to plead their case because each person has to be um, uh, um, represented differently. Absolutely. And that's the key to writing and understanding like this is a science. It ain't just like this is a good song. Like, it's a good song, that's cool, but how are you gonna be able to make this so personal that the audience knows exactly the type of person who's singing it? Absolutely. And that's a difficult task, and it takes work. And it wasn't a thing that I just went in there and figured out, I wrote a lot of terrible songs, bro. <laughs> you know, a lot of terrible songs, had a lot of bad sessions, had a lot of, you know, but as you go, you start figuring yourself out, you start figuring out your technique and your sound, and you start understanding how to identify with the audience and understand different audiences and who they are, you know? So when I'm writing for City Girls, you'll be like, that's the same guy who did the Beyonce stuff? Yeah, because I know how to identify with that personality. You know, so you gotta understand that there's different people and different energies. You know, when you hear, um, enjoy yourself by pop smoking, you, you, you hear like, okay, he understood that is a different dynamic, right. and it's a different sound, a different energy, or or uh, acting up by MMG with Meek Mills and all of them. Like yeah. it's a different energy. Right. How to understand how to speak to those different energies and say the things and understand how to speak for those 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 not just the artists but the fans that they're trying to reach. And it takes a certain level of selflessness. That's why I always tell people you can't be an arrogant songwriter. Anybody who meet me know I'm personable, I'm kind, I'm polite, because if I don't understand who the people are, if I think I'm too good or too grand for the people, then how do I get to connect to them? How do we know them? Right. You know what I mean? Right. Whenever I meet an arrogant songwriter, right. I always know they're not, they're not gonna last long. You're not connecting, you know what I mean? Right. I might have a gift, but in right. order to sustain that gift, you gotta connect to the audience. Right. Anybody right. can, you know, shoot it backwards, half-court shot, make it once. That's a fact. So the artist, you, was, you were getting into the art of
0: songwriting, Rick. Yeah. And you were kind of breaking down the art of songwriting. So in the art of songwriting, what do you suggest
1: are the beginning steps of learning that art? Melody, progression, and understanding how to say the most complex thing in the simplest way ever, it, all right? Um, or how do you say the most simple thing in a way that's never been said before? So these are two things. I gotta say the most complex thing in a simple way or I have to say the most simple thing in a way that's never been said before. I'll give you an example. I wrote a song and the premise was, if you're good to me, or if you're bad to me, I'm okay, as long as you're with me, right? Now the lyrics say, you could be a sweet dream or a beautiful nightmare. Either way, I don't wanna wake up from you. Now I took something that was like, either you can be, treat me amazing, or you can treat me terrible. Either way, I'm cool, as long as you're here. Now that's a simple, Concept is ridiculous, but it's a simple complex. So, but concept rather, it's a simple concept. But how do you say it in a way that makes a person say, wow, now imagine a girl who's going through that. Imagine a girl in a terrible relationship with a guy who treats her horrible, but every time she, he tries to leave her, she's like, okay, but don't leave. And if I say you could be a sweet dream or a beautiful nightmare, either way, I don't wanna wake up from you. Dream, nightmare. Sweet dream, beautiful nightmare. Sleeping, wake up. It's all those things that come together and it's saying that thing, it's simple. You can treat me bad or you can treat me good. Either way, just treat me. There you go. So that is the way you kind of take ideas. Um, There's a song, and I miss you, like the desert misses the rain. That's just, that right there is like, whoa. That is genius. I didn't write that. I wish I did. But it's just like you find ways to say things that is like I could easily just say, and I miss you. That's it. And missing you is such a hit all the time, right? Anytime you write a really good miss you song, you literally could just say, I'm missing you. (laughs) That's just, but to say like the desert missed the rain is like Jesus. That's really missing a person. And when you're experiencing that. When you're in the middle of that heartbreak, in the middle of that, you need something that helps you explain it because you don't have words. That's why when you, if you ever notice, you go to a concert and people are crying and um, emotional because you're connecting to somebody who spoke to you in a point in your life where you felt the most uh, desperate. Right, so you're saying, I love Mary because when she's saying, I'm going down, my whole world's upside down. It's like, I was going down. Like I was going through that and I was connected to that. So your job is not just to write something that sounds cool. Your job is to write something that's so compelling that it causes for a person to decide today that I'm gonna live and not die. And I know that sounds super extreme, but I'm telling you, it's that serious. Like if the song is saying to you, I don't even know what to do, but I heard this lyric and it made me understand that I'm not crazy. Somebody else feels this way, she spoke for me, he spoke for me, and if the music does that and it connects to the people that strongly, it's almost like saying, okay, I wanna live today because I didn't wanna live and then I heard that song. Or I went to the concert and I saw 16,000 people around me who feel just like me, right? When we feel like we by ourselves is the most difficult and uh, loneliest feeling, so when you feel like oh, it's other people that feel this way. I don't think I should, I think I should be here. or I think I shouldn't give up. Even let's not even go this far stream is life or death. But the reason why I want to go life or death is because that's how much the job is, that's how important the job is. Because you can literally help people decide whether they're gonna be here or not. From a song. You know what I mean? A great song is like a hug, it's like a held hand, it's like a kiss, it's like a kiss on the forehead. It's like a brush across the face. It's something that comforts a person and makes them feel like, I didn't think anybody understood me, but you sang that song and I knew you got me. And that's how serious it is. So if you think about what the art of the song is, is how do I take something, an emotion that a person thinks that they feel all alone themselves and make them realize like, I'm not by myself. The reason why lemonade had more of an effect than so many other heartbreak projects is because you don't think Beyonce could ever go through that. Yeah. Like, no, it's no way. I'm in here wrestling and arguing with this baby daddy of mine and Beyonce is too? <laughs> what? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, then you like connect to her a whole different way. That's what music should do. It should humanize it for you. It should make the thing that's like, wow, this I, could, I didn't know that a person 100%. of that stature, that level, of that, I look at her like this and she's crying too. Oh, you know, so. Absolutely. I agree 100%, man. He's dropping jewels. I hope y'all catching them now. He's that's dropping them. If y'all mean, ain't catching them and putting them on your watch and then you,
0: and you hear, that's it, on you. But he's giving them to you now. He's getting his jeweler, jeweler on. So I got a, another question stemming off of that. I like to ask people what is when you're doing your work? What do you
1: consider the
0: hard work of it and the hard work of it?
1: If the hard work is showing up every day. When you get there, that's the hard work, right? Because this business is extremely unforgiving. It's extremely unforgiving. I'm gonna give you an example. I have maybe 48 hit records, right? Um, 2016, to 2000 and, 2016 to two thousand and maybe eighteen. No, it's two fifteen to two seventeen. I didn't have a hit at radio. Now mind you, I sold one hundred and fifty six million albums. I got Grammys and all these things. And you go out and people will say, "What's up, bro? What you been up to?" <laughs> and I'm like, "What? Like I could stop today. I'm solidified." But that's the hard work, it's people, it's an unforgiving business. Who cares what you did before? What did you do today? I had a situation where I didn't, I went a while. it's not even a long time, if you think about it. I went two years without having a hit. When I had my next hit, which was, um, was it missing my, uh, Gucci missing my woe, and then I had um, uh, City Girls um, twerk. twerk. And I remember when uh, people, I saw somebody write, Man, Rico, about time Rico Love had another hit. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that is the part of the game that's the hard work. Because now you got to keep showing up and keep ignoring those comments and keep ignoring the. Now you got to say to yourself, I got to, the heart is when I get there because I know that nobody can do what I do at the level that I do it. That's what I know, I don't. I'm, that don't even, the, the studio stuff don't scare me because I sat at Beyonce's face and wrote a hit record. And I don't know if you know how hard that is, but she is an intimidating figure. The most kind and polite and loving artist I've ever worked with, but intimidating. Because she walks in and she she's puts her back down and she says, all right, what you got? And I'm like, oh God, what do I have? Because she's like, yeah, impress me, go. And I was able to do that. Nothing scares me in that booth, in that studio. Like, nothing scares me there. But it's just a part of understanding how relentless and heartless the audience is. You know, the computer, the keyboard gangsters. You know, the ones who got everything to say about, like imagine somebody coming up to you who never done anything in their whole life, saying, damn, bro, you ain't had a hit in a minute. And you're like, bro, you never had a hit ever. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? And that is the part that's the hard work. You know, being there, still showing up, still performing, still writing, um, um, you're a testament to this. I write songs every day. I don't play them for people. I don't write songs and send them to every artist. I just write songs because that's my sport. Every jump shot that Steph Curry makes doesn't count. It's just practice. But if he don't only cared about the, the shots that count during the game, Terrible. How, how good of a shooter would he be? So we put up the shots, that's the part of the work that we love, but when we get there, getting up and getting there is the hard work. When you get there, that's the hard work because I love it so much and it comes so natural for me. And I, I don't know how to write a bad song, but I do know how to write a lot of good ones and then sometimes I write really great ones. Now back in the day I wrote a lot of bad ones in order to get to where I'm at. But every song I write is gonna be good. That don't mean it's gonna be great. And there's a difference. A good song mean I can play it for a, a, a novice and they'll hear it and be like, right, oh my God, this is amazing. But a great song means that it's just instant, timeless from the worst critic of all time and just nothing you can do about it. So that's the hard work is being able to go in the studio every day and sharpen my pen and perfect my craft. I enjoy that. The hard work is you. Y'all the hard work, you
0: know (laughs) what I mean? When you gonna have another hit? Yeah, man. You ain't never been in the studio with nobody.
1: That's (laughs) like, man, that's like a homeless person walking in the house and like, this house cool. (laughs) (laughs) Tired.
0: I love that. Um, How do you... Break down. Let's talk about the business of music mm-hmm. because it's called the music business for a reason. Yes. And this is the important part because we have a lot of creatives, but just they don't know the business. So then when it's time for them to actually get there, could you imagine if you didn't know the business when you wrote Sweet Dreams, A Beautiful Nightmare? Could you imagine if you didn't know the business when you wrote Nelly? biggest record could you I, I could just name a bunch of but could you imagine if you didn't know the business then and even
1: then we were just learning it as well but we the, the boot camp that I went to in Atlanta just being around like so for instance uh I remember Sierra got her deal first you know so we would talk about her deal and, and she'd be like she had a single deal so basically if goodies came goodies came out if goodies wouldn't have been a hit they could have opted and not continue the deal. So she had what it was called a single deal. So she, I remember she came and played Me Goodies and was like, this is gonna be, Lil John did this for me, and, I'm, and I was like, oh shit, all right. But then we learned through her. I remember when JQ was telling us about being in, um, um, when his publishing deal and he didn't c- fulfill a certain amount of songs in the MDRC and understanding how that works and what happens if he doesn't complete a certain amount of songs and, and about reversions and getting your publisher back after 15 years and owning back the masters. And we would sit around and hear those conversations between Brian Michael Cox and Jazzy Faye and Tricky Stewart and, and Los, you know, we would just be sitting there hearing. I remember when, when um, uh, Peer Music gave the dream his first, the, the publishing deal for 1.5 million and we was like, whoa, and he went and bought that Jag. And we was like, you know, so we were around learning the business and picking up on it and understanding how to sacrifice, you know what I mean? Like, I remember when um, I I I co-wrote a song called Seduction on a Confessions album and um, Usher's Usher's management at the time is his, came to me and offered me $5,000 for the song. And I was like, but I'm already broke. So five grand, if I say no to five grand, I'm, almost, I'm still broke, but if I say yes to five grand, I'm gonna be broke next week, again. <laughs> and I'm still, now you own me. So I said no. And I remember how upset and frustrated everybody was. Like why don't you just take it? So they took the song off the album. So if you listen to the Confessions original album, Seduction is not on album. And, but they kept throwback on album. They were gonna take throwback off of the album, not Usher, I'm not gonna throw him under the bus. But the people behind him was trying to give me a publishing deal, a 20 song deal for $36,000. Now let me explain to you what this means. Yes. 20 songs, if you just do top line and you write the entirety of the song, you get 50% of the, of the uh, song, right? You are 50% of the master, right? So let me show you this. In order for you to complete one song on a 20 song deal, you have to write enough songs to make 100% per song. So now what if you write a song and you only got 35%? So now you need another 15% on another song to just have 50 and that's half of one song of a 20 song deal, right? So I said to them in not so nice words, no. no. <laughs> right? <laughs> SMD is what most people would say, right? right? But it was like a situation, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, I'm, but actually, and I did say that, but it was like a situation where I'm like, no, that I will be a slave to you forever. Right. For one song. And the crazy thing about it was when I actually, I said no, I end up getting a deal, three songs mm-hmm. For 85,000, with 40,000 up front, and I mean, this is my first pub deal. It's a three song deal, which I would have to turn in six. And the first song, which was Confessions, recouped the entire deal. So I started seeing royalties from that first option. So by the time the second option came around, I was able to negotiate 350,000. So it's all of these things that happen, and you're learning as you go. Because I was able to sit around and see this person do this, and I wasn't so money hungry. And I always would tell people, "I'm already broke. I can't get no broker than this." So me saying no to you is just going to leave me here the same way I came. But me saying yes to you makes me temporarily have a little bit of something that I'm going to spend in a few weeks, and now you own me forever, right? So. Did I make all of the most brilliant decisions in my entire life? But in my no, but in, in my career, I was able to say, I'm gonna know, I know how to, you're not gonna screw me over in that in that way. Yeah, I understood it enough to know that that's not the play. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's not the way to go about it. But and even if you understand the way a record contract works or even deals that are given out. Now, the last deal I did, I have I have four different label deals. And then the last different deal I did was a 50-50 profit-sharing venture with Hitco and L.A. Reid. So what that means is that as soon, if they spend $10, as soon as they get their $10 back, we we even. So if the, if the album makes $50, they spent 10, they get their $10 back and now we split 40. I get 20, they get 20. That is a a proper deal, because this person is investing the funds, and then after that, it's a profit-sharing deal. Now, a normal royalty is a 13%, but this is how the 13% is broken up. And it's the most, it's it's so crazy that if it wasn't on paper, you wouldn't even believe it. So this is how it works. If you got a 13% deal, and we spent three and a half million dollars on your project, and then the album comes out, and the album makes six and a half million, you're thinking, okay, I got 13% of the six and a half million, right? Wrong. Your 13% has to be worth three million before you get one dollar. Crazy. Listen to that again. If we spent three million, three and a half million, and you made six, they are not broken even yet. You have to pay them back three and a half million out of your 13%. So until your 13% is worth three million, you still owe these people. Because I, well, trust me, when I first heard it, I had to take a second and kind of add that up because that math ain't math. Man, that's that tricky math, era. <laughs> Right? Ooh. That is how the record industry has been functioning for many years. Absolutely. So problem. when you look up and you say, yeah, but but look at how much money Boyz II Men made. Okay, oh, yeah, but Boyz II Men had to sell literally 50 million albums for all four of those guys to become millionaires. Exactly. You had to actually be astronomically big to the point where if you sold gold or platinum, you'll feel like, oh, that's not enough for me to make money. And it actually is. When they gave Whitney Houston 150 million, they thought they were doing her a favor. She sold 250 million albums. So when she did her deal and she got 150 million, and then remember, she didn't put out an album for 18 years or something like that. She got 150 million, didn't do an album until right before she died, a few years before she died, she did an album. But it was a it was a Texas holdup. Think about that. If you sold two hundred and twenty-five million albums, how much you money got the bodyguard, is? you got you made them billions, billions of dollars. And they said to you, we gotta give you 150 million. And you're like, Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, a lot of money, but in, if you look at it, it ain't nothing. It's nothing. Yeah. And That's that nice. is the nature of the business. But you have to be smart to understand how to play the game until you can change it. The power that you guys have now and that we all have now is that we can stream and distribute our own music. So the tough part back in the day was distribution. Who's gonna pay to make 150,000 CDs, records, albums, tapes, promo, touring, wrap the vans in each city, market in here, pay for radio? Now you don't need that. You literally go social media and can go viral. The record companies have not even figured out how to break an artist via social media. Absolutely. They don't know. (laughs) If they did, all of their acts would have already broken. They have no clue. So much so that they won't even sign you if you don't have a million followers anymore. Because they need you to be able to do their work for them as well. Yep. So it's about understanding your power in today's day and age, understanding when you can give a little, and understanding where you got the position to be able to say, no, I'm not accepting that. That's where understanding and learning the business goes and comes into play. Because being around a long time, I was able to see a lot of people make some great decisions, and I was able to see a lot of people make some terrible decisions. I was able to make some great decisions, and I was able to make some terrible decisions. And in doing so, I think it gave me the well with thought of know. How I can advise others. Right. So great. I hope y'all got that.
0: So do not sign that deal, <laughs> <laughs> unless it's with me. <laughs> so unless it's with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <so. laughs> that's a good one, but that's so true. And if y'all just see these contracts that these labels give you, I look at them. I, I just, I look at them, I'll say that, and he's not telling a lie.
1: It seemed like it's sweet, but if you just understand... But it's gonna have to change soon. Yeah. Because what's happening now is kids thinking they're anti, they're raging against the machine. Right. And they feel like it's not cool to have a record contract anymore. You know what I mean? So much so. I remember I signed an artist, and I remember when we did our deal with Epic. I have a, I have a label deal at Epic as well. And I remember we did the deal with Epic, and she wanted she threw a, a signing party. And I said, don't, don't do that. And she yeah. did it anyway. Yeah. And it's like, you take away from you Like, kids think it's less cool to have a record deal. So if you say I'm with a label, they're kind of like, eh. But if you say I'm getting out the mud, I'm grinding, I'm out here, they want to support that. So I think the mystique, having a record deal, if it's the right one, is not a bad idea sometimes to have somebody to help you and give you a boost to be, you know, if if they're going to put the marketing dollars into your visuals and things like that that you don't want to pay for, then yeah, maybe it's good if you can make it make sense for you. But sometimes the look and the imaging of it, maybe it's good to sign a deal and act like you don't. When Rich Homie Kwon first signed to Def Jam, they acted like he was independent. And then when he put out all those records, it seemed like he was just this new independent kid he had already signed to Def Jam. So much so that Def Jam played the game that they act like they did a bit war for him. They had already had him signed. They understood that this is the music and entertainment business. This is show business. Let's put on a show. Let's act like we didn't need to, we about to sign this person to give him all this money. Man, we signed him in three years ago. (laughs) And we just been working it underground to make it look like he's independent. And that's, it's just a business. Smoke and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors. The hand
0: is quicker than the eye. Question from the audience says: how can we get inside of songwriting camps?
1: Yeah, camps are different because you have to be invited to those camps. So if you're a songwriter and you, um, if you want to do a camp or you want to get in one of those things, those sessions, you have to kind of know the a and in charge of the project or the a and at the publishing company who's putting it together. So those are difficult. Um, and they, they could be a great way to break, you know, they, they're, they're a wonderful way to break sometimes going to those camps, but it's not necessarily the... A thing you can just get inside of. It's not a strategy. It's more about relationships. Absolutely. And I always tell people it's not about what you know. It's not even about who you know. It's about who knows you. Because I know Obama. He don't know me back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> what advice do you have
1: for an artist struggling to find their sound? Keep creating. And um, uh, so I would say this: if you're trying to find your sound, write country records for a month, and then write bluegrass records for a month. Seriously, then write R&B records for a month, and then write um, jazz records for a month, and then write heavy, like like soft rock and rock. Do everything, and just keep rotating. Just write and write and write. And what happens is you'll develop your niche, and you'll find what's the consistent. Melodic chain you go to, what's the consistent thing that in all of these genres that you've been writing that stands out. So um, I'll listen to Otis Redding for a month straight every day. That's all I listen to every time I get in my car. Then I'll listen to Marvin for a month, then I'll listen to N.W.A. for a month, then I'll listen to Biggie for a month. I ride my bike now. I've been riding bikes. I just started riding a bike a month ago, and I ride my bike every morning. I listen to Biggie, not Life After Death, I've been listening to it every day. And I don't know why, but I'm just listening to it. And then over time, i have realized how I'm using it to develop myself, you know what I mean? And that's one of those things where you kind of just figure out yourself by just exploring different sounds. That's the key. Talk to them about your songwriting, it's on here, but talk to them about your
0: songwriting process. You had now he's gonna explain it, but if you can actually see it, it's it's unbelievable until you see it. And I, did, I had the opportunity to see it Right after he did conf- the song for uh, Usher, he came. He flew back to Milwaukee and wrote a song for my sister Shay called "Let's Not Talk About It." I that. And, and this was oh man, 15, 20 years ago, and it was literally right after he did the Confession album was actually getting ready to come out or had just came out. Yeah, and yeah, it had just came out. He's like, I want to. Uh, I'm gonna come to Milwaukee and write a song for Shay. So I'm thin- I, got, I, got, I got a studio in Hampton back in the day, Big yeah, Sound, yeah. <laughs> the house, it was like, like Motown. Yeah. And I got a stack of notebooks and pens, thinking he's finna write a song. And the man gets in there and says,
1: play the track. And then what happens, Rie? <laughs> so I hear the chords, and I listen to the chords, and I hear the lyrics inside the chords. So um, how can I describe it? It's, describing, all right, it's, it's hard to describe it because I'm trying to describe something that I see in my head to you. So I can hear it and see the words and the melody at the same time. So as with some people, will sit in the room and go, i just hear it three times in here. Oh, let's not talk about it, like right away. And I can hear the words inside of the music. I know, it don't make sense to most people, but it's like when you hear, so if I hear that, I'll just hear, you better tell me how to do what you can. I can hear that word. Instead of just hearing the bass line, I can hear the words. And it comes from rapping. So when you rap and you freestyle, you just hear whatever the beat, the flow in the pocket, the beat. So what I do is melodically, I can hear it. So um, when I wrote, let's say, There Goes My Baby or Daddy's Home or, um, I can just hear it instantly. So when you hear. And I go. There goes my baby. Oh girl. And I might not have to look at you. I'll go. Oh girl. You don't know how good it feels to call. You know and I can put it together naturally. So when you're watching it. It looks like I already wrote it, and that's why most people are kind of bugged out about my process. Because if you see me do it, you'll think to yourself, "All right, he must have wrote that in the car, or he must have already had that." But it's kind of like it's either gonna come like that extremely quick, or it's not gonna at all, and that's okay. So if I hear a progression, um, and I don't write to beats, so when people get upset with me, like, "Can I see some beats?" I don't write to beats. I write to chords. So. Me and a guitar player or me and a piano player write a song faster than a guy who's sending me some tracks because it's too busy. It's too much going on. I'm writing just to the progression. And then after we wrote, well, after I wrote the top line to There Goes My Baby, then me and Jim Johnson built out the music. Because if you can write the song to the chords, if the song can exist on its own, then the production is just about nailing how it should sound afterwards. The most difficult part is the top line. If you got a top line, you could change the music until it gets right. You got a great lyric and melody, you can figure out how to make the music work. But you, I don't care how good the music is, if that lyric and melody ain't working, you, you don't have a song. So I believe in writing to the chords and then figuring out everything after the fact. But if you, the reason why he's saying it like this is the process is. Um, I've been doing it so long that it kind of like still, it seems it's very natural for me. But I do understand when people see it that why they're so mesmerized. It's like a show. It's like you're watching a person think of something and then out of thin air and without hesitation, just go in the booth and um, do it. Yeah. And it, um, I'm the first time I saw it, it tripped me out. I ain't going to
0: lie mm-hmm. to you. I like, ain't no way <laughs> he just wrote that. Yeah. And,
1: was, and wrote a lot of bad ones too though. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it shit ain't always matching <laughs> All right. This was, this question says Tragic.
0: Um, <laughs> uh MK Music Economy. What steps do you believe has to has to be taken for Milwaukee to grow in its music economy?
1: Um I know people expect you to say, Oh, we'll stop hating on each other. That ain't never gonna happen. <laughs> but it's just not nowhere. Everybody gonna hate. Saw this, you know. Uh, it was a point where I used to come here, and guys would create problems with me. I'm like, bro, I just seen you last week. We was cool. Like it just the jealousy is always gonna be there, right? But I think that in order to under- to thrive in the city is understanding how powerful you are if you just exist in yourself. What does that mean? Put out your music here, and build the following here, and get the fans here. And, and do the shows here. And don't chase the radio. Just make the music work. Understand how long. All right, if you are if you at a record label, and you have million dollar promotion and marketing team, it takes still four to six months to break a record. So if you're independent, you could expect that it could take a year or two to break a record. That's okay. When I first heard Boot Up by LMA, it was four years before it came and hit. She was opening up a show for Kaylani in a, in a place called Revolution Live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And she sang this song that kind of stood up to me, and the crowd knew it. I heard it four years later on the radio. It takes time. So the problem is you put out a song, and then after a month, you say, Man, nobody supported me. It's companies that got millions of dollars in marketing that still takes them six months to a year to break a record. And sometimes the record still don't break. So if you don't have that, you have to understand, I might have to put in my footwork on this one song for two years. That don't mean I'm not going to put out other songs. That's not what I'm saying. Keep putting out music. But understand, I'm still targeting and working this song. If you understand that process and keep working and working and working and working at that song, and then say, I'm only going to focus on Milwaukee, and then I'm going to do Racine, then I'm going to do Waukegan, then I'm going to do Kenosha, and then I'm working. Before you know it, I'm getting booked three, four times a week in one state. Now, what does that booking mean? That means that I'm getting $2,500 at this club, $2,500 at this club, $1,500 at this club, and I just made ten grand in a week's time doing music. So now what does that mean? I get to quit my day job. So now I quit my day job, I get to focus solely on music. Then I put out another song and they keep growing and keep growing. Before you know it, a DJ from Chicago comes down to Waukega and hears the song and says, I'm going to take this to Chicago. Now the record's working in Chicago. Then it starts working in Peoria. Then it starts working in Iowa. Then in Indianapolis. Before you know it, I got a regional hit in three years' time. The reason why that's unappealing to most people, because they don't like the sound of three years. But if you understand how powerful that three years can make you, I tell my artists all the time, if you watch uh, 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 Lil Baby and you say, all right, cool, he started off with one record, he started working uh, the Future. When they put out, the uh, first record he put out was Racks on Racks on Racks for a kid named Young Chris. And they found out later that the guy doing the hook was actually Future and not the Young Chris guy. He's working in Racks on Racks on Racks. He's going around doing that. Then he puts out Tony Montana that starts bubbling. He working, he working, he working, he working, he working it. Now, the reason why they said free bands, you know why they call it free bands? is because he would show up to some markets, they'll pay him 35, four grand to do a show. He would show up and nobody be in the audience. Free bands, I took the money, <laughs> I ain't have to work. That's why he called his label free bands, I'm not Absolutely. exaggerating. So basically, he was able to show up and get four grand a night. Now, to a kid who ain't never had nothing, if you make $26,000, $28,000 in a weekend, you're like, oh man, that's good. You should get $1.5 million a show now. Yep. <laughs> Think about that. He was making $4,000 a night. Now he makes $1.5 million a night and will not walk into your nightclub for less than half a million. Free bands. It's the freest money i ever heard of. <laughs> but think about the process to get there. The problem is people don't understand the process. Your first time hearing the song, it was a hit. So when you understand how long it takes for that record to become a hit, when you understand when that record was serviced to all the DJs, when that record was put, put out there and posted on the IG, it was three and a half years ago. And then if you tell me, all right, cool, I'm going to show you something. When I was growing up, my mother made $25,000 a year. 25,000 a year. Let's do this math. If I make $1 million a show, but it took me 10 years to get to the point where I make $1 million a show. 25, 50, 75, 100. What? I make years? more than what she made in 10 years on one show. Mm-hmm. You got to understand that work is not for nothing. I'm going to make up for every year that I lost if I keep working at it. And I keep understanding how to be broke, how to be hungry, how to not have the new Balenciaga's, the new J's, how to sleep on the floor, how to eat sandwiches and not go to the restaurant, how to sacrifice and put every dollar I get into the brand. Into the, I'm telling you, that's why not a lot of people make it. Absolutely, They don't want to take those risks. And that's why a person is more upset. That's why when the hate came to me personally, I was angry. Because I was like, y'all don't know what I'm dealing with. <laughs> right. At the time that I got the most hate, I was the brokest. I didn't have nothing. Guys was so mad at me. And I'm like, bro, I didn't even give no money yet. So if you understand what you deal with and what you got to go through to actually get to the next level, you understand why people work so hard and why we, why we grind so hard. And why, think about it. And I talked to Future like a, a few months ago. And they were asking him, I was in a room with him. And they said, why are you in the studio so much? And he said, where else I'm going to go? Where I'm going to go? If I go outside, they're going to try to rob me. If I go here, they're going to try to kill me. If I do this, I gotta, you know, I can't do nothing. But I also know that how hard it took for me to get here and how broke I was and I don't want to go back. So when you understand the struggle, then you work super hard. But a guy on the outside is looking like, man, homes don't want to put nobody on. How? Bro, you got to put, you, you know how much work? I can't just snap my fingers and make the world love you. You got to make them love you, bro. You can't even post somebody now and expect them to get a bunch of followers. People be like, post me on your gram. I could post you right now. It would take 12 to 15 posts before I can get people to actually consistently say that they're going to follow you now. Yep. If you ever watch my Instagram page, you know how much I post my artists nonstop. You know why? Because it takes 25 posts before somebody be like, all right, I'm going to follow this. So, the grind is like this consistency is understanding that this thing might take me 10 years and I have to be okay with that. But if in a year's time I can make $1,500 a night doing what I love to do, then I'm closer. Or $500. Or, or a free bottle and a table. Think about it. If a promoter say, Bro, I like your style, I like what you're doing, I'll give you a table and a section and you can perform your song tonight. There's some people probably in this room who'll be like, man, they got to give me some money. Get up there and sing the song. Right. Until they do it, until they want to give you the money. I talked to Big Crit, and Big Crit, when he did his tour, he sold out the tour in 20 minutes. He said, when I first went to Plano, Texas, I did a show, and it was 15 people in the crowd. I did the next city was 15 people, next city 15 people. I came back, it was 50 people. Next city, 50 people, next 50, 50. Came back, it was 150 people. Next, came back, it was 300 people. Next, came back, it was 3,000 people. What if he would've did the first run and said, man, you know what, This nobody came to the show. Everybody was tweeting me saying they was gonna come and nobody came. They're not going to come sometimes. It happens. Absolutely. Or they'll come for the first time, and then the next time they won't come. It happens like that. So you got to understand the momentum. And I'm going to say this last thing about that. I was just telling the artist that I was speaking to today. There's a girl named Lonnie P. She's from Milwaukee. She's super fire, teenage girl. She's like a high school girl. She's going to be special. And I told this girl how important consistency is in this business. And I'm going to show you this. If I opened up a pizza shop across the street and this pizza was amazing, amazing pizza. And for the first two months, um, I got up to a, a 70, 60 person a week clientele, consistent. And then September, October, I go, I'm going strong. November, December, I close it. Then I pop back up in January and said, OK, we open. And now 30 people a week. And then I close it down again. Then six months later, I open it back up and I say, All right, cool, we back open. And then now 15 people. Every time you stop, every time you stop, you gotta start over again. Every time. When people saw Trey Songs blow up on the I'm Ready album, they don't remember the I'm Just Gotta Make It album. They don't remember the Superwoman record that came out that didn't perform. They don't remember all. He had to do all of that and create the Trades Angels and do all that stuff and build it up so that by the time Invented Sex came out, it wasn't just that that song blew up. It was like all of the people that have been gathering for these past five or six years all came together and agreed that I'm good and showing the world that I'm good. And I had one record that the masses loved. And then when the masses looked up and seen the show and when the masses show up the show because of one record, they're going to look around and see everybody knows all the other songs. You're like, what's all these other songs? What, you just now know about Trey? We've been on Trey for five years. Now I gotta go back and listen to all the music. But imagine if he would've stopped and then came back later, with invented sex and it blew up, that's one song. Bro, you know how stressful it is to have one hit record? I do, <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> you know how stressful, if I didn't have a catalog of hits to play for people, you know how lonely that show would be waiting to get to that one song? <laughs> you got to build it up. You got to put in the work, put in the time. You got to be prepared for things to be looking really good on Monday and really bad on Friday and then good again Monday. That's how the game is. And by the way, nobody cares. Oh, my, my mom had just died. Damn, sorry to hear that. Next thing. My brother was murdered. Oh, bro, sorry to hear that. Next thing. Next thing. Because everybody's going through it. Everybody's stressing. Everybody's crying. I'm sorry that that happened to you. But at the end of the day, there's a corporate office over here that don't care that humans even exist. Absolutely. If they could have robots sing these songs, they would pay to make the money. They, they would do it. So all the stuff you're going through in your day, bro, I'm sorry because I'm a great person. I don't care either, by the way. Person to person, I hate that it happened to you. But if you're trying to make that as a reason why I should listen to your record, no, bro, because I don't care about that in that perspective, and nobody does. And I hate that it's that way, but that's the business. If you tell me, bro, this happened to me the other day, but I also went that same day and did this, 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 and the third, now now you're talking. Okay, now I want to hear what you got to say. But all that stuff about this happened, and man, I had blah, blah, blah. Man, I had 16,000 followers on Instagram, raised my whole page. All right, start over then, because I don't have time to talk about this. What are we doing? Keep going. It's a grind. Some days the grind is good. Most days it's bad until it gets good again. And the worst thing that ever happened is to have an extreme, extreme level of success right away. Because yep. now you have this disenchanted idea of what the life is going to be like for you. I put out Settle Down years ago. And I thought, oh, that joint popped off. Next one I do. They didn't even play it one time. It happens like that. It's lightning in the bottle, so you got to keep grinding. You got to keep working. It's frustrating. It's so harsh to hear. It's so harsh to hear, but it's the actual facts. And those of us who make it are the ones who understand that and who understand that the mission is bigger than the excuse. execution is bigger than an excuse. You have to do it. You have to do it. Oprah raped, molested, tried drugs, was a crackhead. Her mother didn't love her, didn't take care of her, didn't do nothing for her. She was in a racist um, um, market doing radio, I mean, doing um, newscasting, broadcasting. She picked up a drug habit. She went through all of this stuff. So it's really nothing you can tell Oprah. If you came to Oprah and say, yeah, you know, my mom didn't really like you, man. She'd be like, "Mine didn't either. <laughs> yep. Oh, I was sexually assaulted at a young age. Me too. Hates that it happened. It's not a nice thing to happen. But at the end of the day, what's going to happen next? That's up to you. That part is up to you. You have to make that decision. Because every story that you can tell has already been told. And that's the part they don't tell you on PBS. That's the truth. And it ain't pretty. And that's a fact.
0: (laughs) We we were just traveling yesterday, and I was on the phone with a particular person, an individual, and they were telling telling me everything wrong about a product. I'm like, but these people want a product, though. (laughs) So I got to find somebody to get the product. Just say you can't do it,
1: my... My, my, this individual yeah and man. i got to go get somebody else you got it you got to understand that um yeah. especially when it comes to us when when you show up to work when you when something happens and your job tell you all right cool uh y- y- your family member passed away all right cool three days go to the funeral come on back we need you back here but you ain't back on that day they gonna be like hey what's up where you at Oh, man, we end up the funeral, end up going. In. All right, cool. One more day. I need you here tomorrow. You're not here tomorrow? Listen, bro, don't come back. Do you think that they don't care that your family member died? Yeah, I'm sure the supervisor is, is, feels bad that that happened to you. But these people want their money. They want to get make their profit. Absolutely. So what are you going to do? Why is it in corporate you make sure you have your ass back to work? But when it comes to working for yourself, you want everybody to feel sorry for you. That's the craziest thing in the world. You'll go work a nine to five for somebody and do everything they tell you to do, when they tell you to do it, on a sick day with your leg cut off. But for yourself, you stand to benefit more in this situation than everybody. And you won't sacrifice for yourself the same way you will sacrifice for Walmart? What? How much money they got? They don't need you. You need you more than they need you. Absolutely. Come on, man. Kid. And it's crazy how we've been programmed to believe that we got to show up for them and don't show up for ourselves. I'm showing up for me. Crazy.
0: That's a fact. That is a fact, man. Hey, I hope y'all caught that. (laughs) If y'all didn't catch that, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. If you ain't going to bet on you, why would I put my money on you? That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to leave it right there. Let's go to the next question. Um, This one says, when you're writing a song for someone else, do you always have an artist or artists in mind to pitch to?
1: No, no, no. I just write every day I'm writing. Um, Honestly, I don't even play the songs that I write for artists. I always write new songs when they get there. But when I'm writing songs every day, it's not for anyone. It's for me to be better at writing songs. If it just so happens that I hear something that I think could work, or if somebody says, I really want a song about this, and I'm like, damn, I just wrote a song like this. Maybe I should play it for them. That's a case that, that'll happen. But when I write music every day, it's just so I can be a better songwriter. That's it. It's not just so I can sell every song that I write. And some of them do sell. But I have literally thousands and thousands and thousands of songs on hard drives, on hard drives, on hard drives, hard drives, that nobody's ever heard because I'm just doing, I'm writing every day to make sure I'm a better writer. And that's a fact. It was so much so that I was like, bro, you remember this song? Man, I
0: forgot I even wrote that. You yeah. remember this song? Man, play that one more time. Yeah, yeah, Man, when yeah. do, we, we, where, where do we do this at? It's like yeah. literally that much music. It's crazy.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And to me, it makes sense because you think LeBron James don't go to the gym when he not playing a yeah, game? Yeah,
1: exactly. You gotta go. You gotta go. You gotta go. Kobe, it was there. Yeah.
0: People would they would they tell stories all the time of how they would go party. Steven Jackson, and I because I worked with him when he was a Milwaukee buck, and he told one time how he tried to get Kobe to come to the club in Milwaukee. He said, Kobe said he was coming, and they had like a three day three days here. The first day, he figured since you got so much time, he was gonna actually come out. So he said, I was gonna take him to I forgot the name of the spot downtown. So he said, Kobe said he was coming. So they waited for Kobe. They, call, they leave the club. They called Kobe. Kobe said, oh, man, I'm just leaving the gym. Mind you, they was at the club party. He said, I'm going to go with y'all tomorrow. They're playing the Bucks. The Bucks are not good at this time, by the way. <laughs> so he, Kobe don't need to practice to, to beat the Bucks, just for the record. <laughs> he said, the next day, man, Kobe, let me, let me take you. Let me take Let's go to eat, and then we're going to go to the, what's her name? They take Kobe to Elsas to eat. Kobe said, I'm going to go get changed. I'm going to meet y'all at the club. Send the address. I'm going to have my security in the car take me. Kobe doesn't show up again. Stack five called him and say, Man, you good? Oh yeah, Stack. He could tell he was he was breathing hard. He was in the gym. They were still leaving the club. Next night is game night. <laughs> Kobe dropped 50 on him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Kobe let them party and he dropped 50. And he didn't have to. It was the Bucks. Not the good Bucks now, the Bucks back then. You know what I'm saying? So that's the difference. And that's the difference in a, a Rico Love songwriter and other songwriters. Yeah, he man. gonna, if Rico do step out and go somewhere, I'm telling you, we're going back to the studio. Yeah, yeah. We leave, we leave the studio, we're going back. So we're gonna take a break, get you something to eat, but make sure you sound mine because it's time to go back to the studio. So yeah. make sure y'all don't miss that, especially those who write for themselves and try to write for others. Make sure you in that studio, you gotta live in the studio. You gotta live in that studio. Got to. Especially, uh, let me go to go back to my questions because uh, I had a good one for you. Um, when you transitioned from songwriter, even though you're not, even though you're still a songwriter, to to CEO, what was that transition like? Because I want people to understand the concept in between the balancing act of the two. And then I'm gonna ask you another question after that. One more about Yeah,
1: that. the most uh, the thing about it is like I said when I first signed my first deal. I signed an artist, um, Takara Hamilton. She's from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, actually. And I remember I signed Takara when I first signed to Usher. So it was before I even had any hit or any success. I always saw myself as an executive. And I remember um, BJ Hortman, singer, me, me and him would move down to Atlanta together. I remember telling BJ, like, hey, bro, we love basketball. Let's start a label and let's call it Division One, since we love basketball. And I think he said to me something like, um, "Man, you thinking too big. Like we're not even on yet." And at the time when I heard him say that, it sounded foreign to me. I was like, "What?" Like, because I didn't think myself. I didn't think of myself that way. I always thought of myself as already like made it. So, and not like in a sense of not working hard, but in a sense of like, why wouldn't I do that? Like, I could have a label too. So, um, I did the label. And it was always the thing I was passionate about. And I remember when I did my first label deal with Universal, Sylvia Rohn gave me a, a deal. And she got fired from Universal maybe two months after she gave me my deal. And I remember negotiating Monty Lippman. And a- it was Avery and Monty, right, over at Republic. And they had to give me 350000 to leave. Because the, they they wasn't they, they didn't want to have, they would rather give me 350 than keep me. Yeah. Not because the music was bad, it's because they just didn't want to have anything that she had signed over there. So things like that happen. I just always had that mind. So I always think to develop acts. The mistake I make is that I signed a lot of talent, and I didn't understand how to sign uh, Perseverance. Mm-hmm. So when I see a person, I'm seeing the talent, but I'm also looking at myself. I'm looking at what I could do with them. The thing that I missed out on is understanding that I can't give you that hunger and that obsession. I'm obsessed. And everything I do, I'm thinking, oh, that will be a dope video. Oh that would be a dope melody, what's this song? I'm in a club and I'm i Shazam and like, what's this? I'm in a restaurant and I'm like, what song is this? You know, um, How can we use this? How can we not, you know? So um, when people don't have that, you know, fame is seductive, man. You know, you and it's a beautiful thing and it's attention and it's, you know, attention is beautiful. It feels good when people look at you and think that you're great. So if people are more addicted to that feeling, than they are to the, the actual process of getting there you know it's, it's hard so as an executive the most difficult part is convincing a person of how special they are and when you know how special you are you know that this this needs to be cultivated stars are born superstars are made absolutely you cannot be born a superstar No, you have to work to become a superstar. So having a record company, and especially coming from the era that I've came from, you know, and when I say this, I'll tell you this, I always wanted an artist as hungry as Usher. I've never met a person. Beyonce and Usher are the two hungriest people I've ever seen. And I'll give you an example. We were on tour. Um, Usher sold out shows every night. Usher makes about $3.5 million a show on the tour, and selling out stadiums, and arena, or selling out arenas, merch, and all this stuff. That's the take. I don't know how it's divvied and all that, but it's just a lot of money that's being made. The reason why I'm talking about the money is to show you like how much it means nothing to him. <laughs> so we on tour. And we are in a Cincinnati, a market, a B market that most people wouldn't even think twice about. Usher had a really bad show that night. Now, to the fans, it wasn't a bad show. To them, it was just, it was Usher. Like, they didn't know. But to us, it was funny. It was like, oh, he messed up on that part. Oh, he did this. Oh, he ran out of breath on that part. Oh, he did the handstand and didn't hold it long. Oh, he did. So we all was kind of like backstage laughing. So after the tour, after the show, we backstage, we on the buses eating pizza and talking and having a good time, and then 35 minutes go by, we still backstage. Usually, we get on the bus, go to the next city. An hour go by, we still backstage. I'm like, what's going on? Two hours go by. So if you understand how touring works, the, the, there's a curfew, and for every, I think, minute or every hour, it might every be- hour. Every, every hour. hour, Yeah. but I think it's minute after a certain time. Every, It may be hour, but after, you're charged- So the venue would charge not little charge like twenty thousand. yeah, some crazy hour, or is either three thousand a minute? It's some crazy number that they charge you for every time you go over. That's why if you ever see people, if you ever get close enough to the stage, you'll see a clock. If you ever go to a big concert, either in the back of the stage where the soundboard is, or close to the stage, is a clock, and it's basically telling them, all right, the show is two hours long. But sometimes the artists will start talking to the crowd and kind of prolong. So you have that clock to say, bro, the curfew, after as soon as this clock go down to zero, it's going to go negative, negative one second, negative two seconds. And you got to pay. That's how much you not getting tonight, right? So he's, we not moving. I go inside and uh, Usher is on the treadmill singing his whole show while right, he's running because he had a bad show. That's the artist I want. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a, an obsession. It's like, I don't have bad shows, so I got to get this right. This don't happen to me, so I'm going to do what it takes so that it won't happen again. And I don't know if it was him punishing himself or him training himself. But either way, I learned something that moment. And I was like, now I think about it a lot. So, As an executive and owning a record company, that's the most difficult part is finding the people who really want it that bad. And I have an artist named Wifey Baby, who's a rapper from uh, Atlanta, and I think she's that. I think she got that that hunger, who's that that obsession, that like, nah, whatever I need to do, I'ma do it, cause I want to win. So the executive part has always been a dream of mine. I grew up admiring Andre Harrell and Puff Daddy and Russell Simmons and and watching, you know. Um, all of the greats, you know what I mean? Establishing their companies, and it's always been a dream of mine to help in develop and cultivate acts. And I think that, obviously, it's, it's a lucrative business to get in if it works. But more than anything, the idea of creating something or seeing something in someone early and then the world, seeing it later, is that's the thing I think I'm obsessed with more than anything when it, when it comes in respects to breaking a, a record company.
0: Makes sense, makes sense. <clears throat> not in going into the
1: executive side and the record company side. Um, Hold on, I got um, Lonnie P on the side, see if she can uh, grab her.
0: Be free can you go get Lonnie on that that side. Um, On the executive side of things, having, having the frustration of putting together projects for artists, then they change because they start to get a taste of fame. What? How do you make adjustments
1: for things of that nature? You can't adjust to that, man. Yeah. You know, what I've realized is that most people are going to be ungrateful at the end. Just as the great philosopher Young Dolph said, <laughs> <Yeah>. get, <laughs> yeah. paid, young get paid. Get paid. Get paid yeah. So at the end of the day, uh, I don't expect loyalty anymore. You know what I mean? It'll be nice, but I just want to do my job, make sure they get where they need to go. And make sure that the business is intact, so whatever. You know, at the end of the day, everybody's going to forget what happened in the, in the beginning. You know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. I've had people say to me, I ain't asked you to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's how it is. I ain't asked you to do none of that. All right, cool. But at the end of the day, what are you going to do to um to make sure that you your business is intact and, and what happens? So I can't. I had artists I wrote and produced and developed, and the album came out and did really well initially, and after that, I couldn't tell them nothing. And then after that, so and you haven't heard from them since. You know what I mean? So that's the nature of the business. Most people don't get it, you know what I mean? Most people will listen to you tell that story about how that happened. You sign them, and they do the exact same thing. You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, make sure the business is intact. Make sure you handle your business so that when whatever happens, you compensated for it. Cause again it's the music business, you know. And um I don't steal, I don't rob artists, I don't give shady deals. I'm not gonna be running around here making a bunch of money and they're gonna be broke. But sometimes creatively, a person can think that they got all the sense. Or sometimes a person will be so close to me that they forget who I am. And that happens a lot too. Cause I don't walk around acting like I'm just blah blah blah. I'm cool. So because I'm cool, that can backfire. A person will forget who you really are and what you've done. You know what I mean? If you sat in the house with Obama every day. You start calling him Barry. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You'll just be like, man, Barry in there. Tripping. So that's just the nature of the business. Yeah. But I just want get, to get, make sure we can do what we got to do to win. And if we win, then I've reached my goal. I put up with the worst, craziest attitudes if, if it means uh my children get to live the life that I want them to live. I'm okay with you being thinking you did it all. And that's a fact. I'm telling you. Do it again. Mm-hmm. Rick, Rick talked me off the ledge a couple a couple hundred times. Yes, you gotta keep your know estate stick in there. It's business. You know, I had people tell me that I ain't do nothing for them. And I right. can show them messages. Them crying on my phone, thanking me in the beginning for changing their life. A year later, it's like, man, I didn't need you for none of this. Absolutely. <laughs> Those words, man. That's how it happens. You know? It's the game. And also, even just writing. Yep. Or just writing. Like, I remember I did a, I did Nelly, Just a Dream. And after that, you know, he didn't even call me for the next album. I remember doing Kelly Rowland Motivation at that whole album. She didn't call me for the next album. You know what I mean? Like, I remember... Doing last train to Paris for Puff, and then on the next project he was working on, he even called me. Doing their biggest records, and it wasn't like I was cold. I was still killing it. I still was the number one guy. I still was songwriter of the year. I still was selling albums. So sometimes it happens, man. The business is, you know, it's just like it is what it is. It's a dog eat dog world. In closing,
0: in closing, um, what do you feel as an artist CEO person, um, in the business? is the, one of the most important things that you should have to make sure that regardless of what goes left or right with artists or song or companies, that you're covered. What what do we need as creatives to make sure that we're covered? It's b-
1: business-wise? Business-wise,
0: yep. Yeah, to make um, sure we're covered.
1: Well, structuring. like you, you, I, I would say structuring, right? I, and I think that... Uh, understanding that everything don't last the longest you think. All right, so I'm going to give you an example. I did a $10 million publishing deal because I wanted to have $10 million. Now, when I did this deal, I didn't need that money. I had $4.5 million cash, but I wanted to have $15 million. I just wanted it. You know, I just wanted to have it and to be able to say, and this is back when you could call the bank. This is before you could see it on your phone. But I would call the bank every morning. And they would say, "You have an account balance of blah blah blah." I just needed it. If, in retrospect, what I should have done was do a ten million dollar publishing deal, take three hundred thousand of that ten million upfront, and have the publishing company pay me twenty thousand a month for how many years would that be? Ten years? Five years? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I don't. I'm not good at math. But that is security is being able to, to learn how to make the money work for you even if you don't know how to work it yet. Because then that gives me trial and error. I bought two Phantoms, I bought an Audi R8, my baby mama had the BMW, I was just going crazy. It was, it was ridiculous. My condo was 28,000 a month, um, three bedroom penthouse, it was ridiculous because I had access to all of that cash at once. So what I say is the thing to protect yourself. And by the way, I went broke in 2016, right? 16 I went broke, lost everything. I had a 15-bedroom mansion. I had negative money in the account. Chad used to fly down and engineer for me for free because I didn't have money to pay engineer. You, I me, mean, I'm good now. That's what we can talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, but. I went through all that and I'm thinking to myself, what, why did I let that happen? Because I wanted all of this money up front instead of understanding I could have just took, I was already a millionaire. I could have just took 20, 50,000 a month and just so I could have and make you still work. Right. So I think the thing that you should understand now is how to make the money stretch for you. And if you can't trust yourself, if you don't have a plan and this is me speaking ahead because I know it's difficult to get a $10 million publishing deal or any type of deal. So maybe if one person in this room has ever offered a $10, 15000000 million deal, hopefully you can remember this conversation. If they offer you that much money, you got to decide how you want to receive that money. And I would say the thing to protect you is understanding how to make the money stretch. Yeah. Unless you have a definite plan on what to do with that cash right away. I still own my master. I didn't sell my catalog like most people did. But if I were to sell it, I would say, I'm not selling it and getting a $25 million, $30 million deal unless I know exactly what I'm going to do with that $30 million. I'm going to say, I'm going to take $10 million or $5 million of this money and I'm going to buy the 7th District. All of the abandoned homes and I'm going to buy them and I'm going to gut them and I'm going to do something. I got to have a plan or else I'm not going to take that type of money. I'm going understand how to make the money stretch. So the biggest mistake I made was wanting everything up front. Like, I want the bag. And it feels good to have liquidity, right? But Jesus, to lose it, my Lord, It's a difficult one. It's a tough one. It's a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> like, being broke is very easy. But being rich and being broke is, woo, you start looking at cliffs. <laughs> You start thinking of jumping in front of buses, you're like, how can I do this? Because you know what, more than anything I felt, and the great thing I love about my situation and my perseverance, all I thought about was Milwaukee. And I'm gonna tell you why. I have so, I don't know, if they all oh, my haters is old now, but I had so many haters that I was nervous. Whenever you file for bankruptcy, that's public. Every morning I would wake up nervous that Ball Alert was going to post that I had filed for bankruptcy. And the only thing I was worrying about was these haters out here and what they was going to say. Even though that was just a part of the movie and not the end of the movie. But I just didn't, I just want, I just was like, I know they're going to be like, aha, right? I know they couldn't wait to see me down. So when I was able to recover, I couldn't wait to get on the breakfast club and tell everybody, yep, I was just broke. And this (laughs) happened because a lot of times we don't understand that um, that part of your journey had to teach me for the next level of my process. I'm 39 years old and I've seen a lot. I've done a lot. I'm the vice chairman of the Grammys. I'm the youngest vice chairman in the history of the Grammys at 39 years old. I am in a position to do a lot of incredible things. I have partnerships with four different labels. I have a partnership with a Preneur app. I have a partnership with co CoWrite distribution company. I have do th- I do things. I I own I own property here in the city. I do things um, to increase my long-term wealth. Do all of those things um, show me uh, revenue right away? No, but I had to learn and go through some stuff first, but um, if I can say the thing that to protect and cover yourself is figuring out ways to make sure your money stretches and understanding that um, nobody was able to help me when I was going through what I was going through. So what it taught me later was I don't got to help everybody when they going through what they going through. Not because right. of revenge, but it was because... Who I'm going to go to? If I help everybody and I'm jammed up, who I'm going to call for $2 million? (laughs) Ain't enough dinners to cook at the church. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I had to realize and go through all that. So, again, I'm going to say to y'all, you start making money in this, make it stretch, man. You know? I'm not going to tell you what to do with your paper because I I want you to go through it a little bit sometimes. You know what I mean? I want you to hit your head just a little bit so you can know... Because it's one thing for me to tell you, but when you live in it, it's like, man, I felt like I had one one life left on Mario. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's what it felt like. It felt like, man, I'm a level six, one life left. If I fall in that lava, it's over. (laughs) And that process it kind of uh, gave me an understanding of how to move and how to operate and recovering from that process and being able to sustain myself. And still, I still go through things with people trying to take stuff from me and try to do things. You know, it's a lot of stuff going on, you know what I mean? So I'm going through a divorce currently. So anybody ever been through one of those know how, <laughs> how tricky those can get, you know what I mean? So... It's like one of those things where you gotta figure out life and figure out how to make that money work long term and think long term and also understand that you might fall down in the middle of your story. You know what I mean? If you look at success, if you look at if you look at your life, if you look at life being from that point of the wall to that point of the wall, and then you look at. Um, two years of being broke and filing for bankruptcy and losing a mansion and going all the stuff I went through, if you look at it as this much space that it took in the long term of things, it doesn't scare you as much when you realize, oh man, I got this much to go. Right? So look at life as that wall to that wall and look at the period of struggle as this much. If you struggle for 15 years, that's that much. <laughs> Think about that. If you struggle for 25 years, I still got all this way to go in life. And as long as I'm breathing, as long as I'm alive, I got a chance to be able to recover. When you look at it that way, because what's, what's the worst that could really happen? I could take all my money. I could not have no money. i got to go start all over. It's embarrassing. Some people going to laugh and make fun of me, but who cares? We'll figure it out. They better know how to. They better have they laughing shoes on for as long as they can have them on, because we they won't be laughing for long if we know how to figure this thing out. You know. So, um, again, man, make it work for you, and lean into those uh, mistakes and make sure that you make those mistakes pay you later. And another thing about that,
0: because I was around when he said he went broke. I didn't. I was a good friend. I never said a word. Mm-hmm.
1: But the thing yeah, you didn't about even it, know, did you?
0: I I, I didn't know, but you know how you 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 know your friends. Something was different. Yeah, so you you know your friend. You know what I'm saying? So you don't know what it is.
1: I had like three phantoms, and they was going one day.
0: He got Corvette. (laughs) He got a Corvette.
1: I'm like, hold on, man, you driving a Corvette? That's something I would (laughs) do, not you. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So
0: it was it was thing, but when when I'm gonna tell
1: you this though, code that thought. So I had um, the last uh, I had the Wraith the the Phantom, the Rolls Royce Wraith That was the last Rolls Royce I had. And um, I remember um, I never was behind on my bills. And I remember the people calling me and like, hey, uh, weird. We didn't get a payment this month. I was wondering. I was like, I "I don't know, man. This must be like, I figured. I figured it was something up. Don't worry. I'm sure you'll get it to us. Then the next month he called like, yo, we still didn't get that. And you owe for the next. So basically, when they called me the third time, they said, look, we're going to have to come get it in another few weeks or a month or so. Next month, if we don't get the payment, we're going to have to send somebody to come get it. So I drove the Phantom to the dealership, and it was six miles away from my house. And I parked it, left the keys in it, and I walked home, and I cried all the way home. And when I got home, I said, it's the last time you're going to cry about some material stuff, because that's just stuff. They called me a month later. They came to my house a month later to get the Phantom. And I was like, oh, it's at the dealership over there. It's parked. It's been parked over there. Because I said, I'm not going to have these people come to my studio and get this car. I'm not going to have these people come to a restaurant and get this car. I'm not going to have these people pull up on me while I'm out and about. And I gave up the car, and I walked home, and I cried. And I said, it's the last time you're going to cry. And that was it. Then it was work mode, and I had to get to it. And I had to do what I had to do, because that's what it is. What I say earlier, nobody want to hear that sob story. Absolutely. When I went to bankruptcy court and I talked to the judge, I explained to him what's hap- what happened to me and how somebody had ripped me off and this thing happened and this thing. And the judge said, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. We know what happened, sir. It's all in the, it's all in the information. We can see that you were taken advantage of, but that's not what we're here to talk about. You're responsible for it still. He's like, I, I mean, I hate that it happened to you, but that's not what we're here to talk about. It's another court for that. This court is to make sure that you pay it back because we don't care who did what. And that was the best thing to happen to me because I realized, man, nobody cares. So you got to figure it out. And we figuring it out. We work through it. And then when you come up after that, it's like, oh, my God. Now, am, I, am I where I want to be? I want to have a billion dollars. But I'm still blessed to be able to say, oh man, I went through something terrible. So nothing scares me no more. Nothing scares me. I'm not afraid no more. When things happen and things come up and people try to take things from me or fight with me and my lawyers got to go, it don't scare me. I don't lose sleep over it anymore. And I think that that's a part of that journey. You know what I mean? I had to see that the, the, the journey. If it ends there and I'm only here and this was this much I had to go through, I'm going to be all right. Cause as long as I can figure out how to get through this thing, and what if I get to this next level and I fall down again? It can happen, right? I just got to figure it out, and that's how we got to look at it. We got to understand that the the gift make room for you. And when when he say that the gift make room for you, a lot of people don't understand what that means. What it means is, it's six seats at this table. There are nineteen people sitting at this table that only got six seats. And I walk in, and a seat is made available for me. The gift will make room for you. It means that the ability that God gave you is going to make room for that table where there's a 19-people waiting list, and you number 20 on the waiting list, and there's only six chairs available. The gift going to make room for you. So as long as I got the gift, ain't none can scare me. Long as I knew how to write songs, I was waking up every day going to the studio. That's it. All I had to do was go to work. I didn't know what I, why I was working so hard and why I was doing all this stuff and signing artists and putting out records and trying to develop acts until opportunities started presenting themselves. And I was able to get a deal over here, a deal over here, a deal over here, a deal over here. And I was able to sustain myself to some tough periods and then Build that bag back up and be able to focus and then make wiser decisions. I don't have three phantoms anymore. Why? Why did you do that, Rico? I don't spend 300,000 a month on shopping anymore. Why? stupid. I don't go to the club and buy 50 bottles. And spend sixty, seventy thousand in the club anymore. That's stupid. And don't drink nothing but water. And drink and I'm drinking water. <laughs> in about the bottles.
0: Don't drink, don't even drink none.
1: It's just like you start realizing that this little portion of my life is preparing me for this next level. And when I get here, I'm gonna be able to reference that to know why I don't make the decision that most people would have made. That's it. I remember being in the club with legends where I was popping hundreds of bottles and watch them just kind of chill and not spend no money. And I'd be like, damn, why he not? Now I'm that guy in the club watching these young guys go crazy, and I'm like, hey, "You'll see, <laughs> you'll see." You know, so yeah, man. That that uh, experience is the best thing you can keep with you and understand how to make this all this shit work for you, man. Because it's it can be tumultuous, but as long as I'm breathing, I'm good. And when I'm not breathing, then, then I'm really at peace. So that's the most beautiful thing of it all. Because if I'm not here. And I, you know, and I, I know I'm actually in a in perfect piece. So as long as I'm here, I'm in a position to get through whatever is, is there. That's the way the fearlessness comes into play. Absolutely. And during that period,
0: we was in the studio.
1: like you every, said, day. every day. Every day. Never stop working. It's like. Yeah. Danger gave me a room for free. Yep. And Chad would fly down and engineer for me for free. You know what I mean? I couldn't wait to pay him. Remember I started paying you again? <laughs> He's like, hey, what you got going on? I'm like, well, I'm booked. Man, it don't matter. I'm about to send you 10000 yeah, I said,
0: for what? Yeah. Man, don't worry about it. It's on the way. Just send yeah, me your... Like, okay? Because
1: he was down when it was bad. You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. I mean, it was a beautiful thing to be able to pay my brother, you know, and... and do the Mia project and gear yep. checks and, you know, yep, 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 yep. I think you worked like 10 days on that thing. You didn't even really I have even, to work. I didn't even earn the money, but to be honest cool. with you. Like, it was cool. Like, it was good to be able yeah, to just yeah, yeah. do that. But so, um yep. and I'm going to say this one last thing. When I went through my difficult times in life, I knew that I had a clean face. Yep. I never stole from nobody. I never took from nobody. I never was a, a bad person. I was always friendly and polite and kind. So when I was going through it, I could ask people to do stuff for me and they would do it. So just be careful how you treat people, exactly. you know what I mean? Because it'll come back around, and you won't be able to get those uh, favors that you might need to be able to get you through your hard time, you absolutely. know? Absolutely,
0: absolutely, man. And you got really, to really realize in those situations when they come, you really know, like I heard somebody say out there, you really know who ride with you. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times God put me in people's life. He takes me out of their life when they're at their highest point, but then he puts me back in at their lowest point. It happens with a lot of people that I consider friends. When Rico was at his highest point, I wasn't around. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? When he was at his pinnacle, I wasn't there. I was, re- I was removed because what God had for him wasn't for me at the time. And what he was doing was building me up stronger with what i Right in front had. of him though. Don't
1: get it. No, no, to, to it wasn't. It, no, story. no, no,
0: no, 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 no. To tell it right. No, no it no, wasn't no. like
1: I was like, no. you know what? No need for you anymore. <laughs> no, it had <laughs> See you when I'm broke again, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. <laughs> no, it, had, it had nothing to do with him. What it was, what
0: I realized, what it was, was that there are certain people in your life that God put in your life for reasons. And God Everybody's not as strong as our strong friends or strong, uh, uh, what do they call it, confidants in your life. Yeah. So he has to build up people. And the only way he can build up people is that to remove them and put them through things as well. Yeah. So that's what he did. He removed me from what he had going on through myself. I removed me. He didn't remove me. Mm-hmm. I removed me. And... I went through things myself, hardships and things of that nature, learning, trying to put a a company and things together myself, helping people doing what he did for me for other people. Mm. Letting people live with me, you know, no rent. I got a house full of artists and sing, you know, and writers and stuff. I was doing the same, similar state. I was in Atlanta doing it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So I was able to do what he did for me for other people. And what it did was it made me appreciate what he was trying to do for me (laughs) back then. 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So then, I knew what it was like being the only one buying food for 10 people in the house. Yeah. Paying the mortgage and car notes and all that for everybody that drive the cars. I had a new car. My friend Cersei drove it for a month before I even touched it. Our friend, Cersei. I had a new car. He drove it for a whole month. I never touched the car. I had just bought the thing. So, it's just like, what it did was, that I needed to be removed so I can learn.
1: Stewart, good Stewart.
0: Yep, so then when it was time to jump back in, it was like dog, and I said to him, "Bruh, first of all, let me apologize, cause I was dead wrong, right?" First thing I did, hugged it out. We apologized. We talked. When you friends, you could do that. You get and yeah. you got to hold accountability. So the first thing I did was apologize. I told him I loved him, and I was dead wrong, and I apologized, to my brother. But let me tell you what I learned on the way. <laughs> hold on. Yeah. Since, hold on to your hat. We about to turn a sharp corner. Yeah. So, and then we got into that conversation, and I said, "Dog." I see what you was trying to do and how you was trying to do it. And I went through it too, trying to do it for other people. And now I get it. Mm-hmm. So what are we doing? Yep. And we was rolling for that ever since and his life been amazing and mine been just as amazing, man. Yeah, so man. you got to go through things and you got to be able to admit, take accountability to things that you've done. And then, now I didn't steal from him. I that wasn't me. I didn't take no nah, money. Nothing, it wasn't nothing, nothing, nothing like nothing that. Nothing so like I just want you to don't get it twisted.
1: Nothing like that. <laughs>
0: yeah, so but what it was was, it was an opportunity for me to grow so you gotta also take those opportunities to grow as well especially when you deal with people who have done nothing wrong to you but try to help you yeah and then it's going to happen to you so then you know how to take it on the chin when it happens to you as yeah. well you understand what I'm saying so I wanna thank everybody for coming out and getting this knowledge that this brother has set here and dropped I asked the question and didn't have to do nothing else y'all have a blessed one This is your boy, Chaz C. No Roper, the creator and host of Amplifier Community Connection. Amplifier is a free artist development program powered by Radio Milwaukee. Each episode is filmed and recorded in front of a live studio audience at Radio Milwaukee Studios in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Stay connected with Amplifier by registering for our free events or watch us live on Facebook at AmpMKE. You can also follow us on Instagram at AmpMKE as well. Thank you for listening and remember, dreams never expire.